Welcome to the Conservation Today Show. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County. I am your host, Francis Etherington. Last weekend, I attended the annual Public Interest Environmental Law Conference in Eugene, Oregon. The community radio station, KEPW, was broadcasting live from the conference. KEPW is at 97.3 on your dial in Eugene. You can also stream KEPW, and I'll put that link in the podcast description below. KEPW rebroadcasts this show, Conservation Today, on Saturday mornings. They asked me to do a live Conservation Today show at the conference. Yes, it was loads of fun. The conference has hundreds of interesting environmentalists from all over the state. Today, you'll hear those live interviews from the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference. and These were done on March 2nd. So this is Francis Etherington broadcasting live here at the Pilt Conference where everyone's tabling. And who just walked by with is Joseph Vale from KS Wild, Klamath Siskiyou Wildland Center. Hello, Joseph. Hi, Francis. How are you? I am good. It is exciting to get here from Roseburg through all the snow eclops. Yeah. We, uh, I came up from Ashland and uh, wasn't quite as snowy down there, but I went through quite a bit of snow cars on the side of the road, a big RV in the middle of the freeway. It's quite a lot of snow. Yeah, we had a lot of snow down in Roseburg. I live um, near the crest of the Coast Range, outside of Roseburg, and we had over two feet of snow. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful the snowpack will stick around, and it'll be good for the salmon come summertime when the snow will be melting instead of the drought conditions we've had the last few years down in southern Oregon. So we'll see how that goes. Well, this is a record-breaking snow event. Is it? Yes. Yeah. yeah, we've never... I've lived where I live for 40 years, and we've never had anywhere close to this amount of snow, and we did lose quite a few of our oak trees and madrone trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't have quite as much snow as you did um, just to the north. I think the right. atmospheric river, they called it, that, that hit Oregon... Um, was a little bit north of us, so we're, we're really grateful for all the rain that we did get. So um, Francis and I have worked together for a long time, and we sort of share a border there in southern Oregon where it's the north end of where I work and the south end of where you work. So Right. Uh, Medford BLM is <laughs> your territory, and Roseburg BLM is mine, and they meet just south of Roseburg, right. yes. And, you know, we overlap a little bit there and uh, make sure things are covered right in our boundary. Right. Um, but yeah, over the years, we've done a lot of work on protecting old growth forests on BLM lands and national forest lands and making sure the um, laws were followed, the T's were crossed, the I's were dotted on timber sales and pushing the agencies towards more restoration management and less old growth logging. So we've had quite a lot of success doing that and so appreciative for all the work you've done, Francis, over the years on that. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate the work you and George Sexton I worked with a lot also. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How's it going up there on the Klamath? How is the Medford BLM behaving these days? It's not as good as we'd like. Um, You know, in 2016, they came out with a new plan for the Medford district um, and all the BLM districts and in Oregon. Actually, I'm going to be talking about the BLM at the, in the next panel. So, um, right. Yeah. So there's about two million acres of BLM land in, in Western Oregon, and they came out with a new plan for all for all that all that landscape, all the checkerboard, land, you know, BLM land, 
And down in down in the Medford district, it's a quite a big district, about eight hundred thousand acres, and we have wild and scenic rivers like the Wild Rogue that fl- flows through the BLM, um, old growth forests and old growth forest dependent species. Um, in 2016, they came out with a new plan for for that whole landscape and. Um, they've really emphasized this regeneration harvest thing, which is essentially uh, a clear-cut light sort of approach that we're really concerned with. So we've been really trying to push them away from that and into thinning small diameter around homes and communities focused on restoration and community protection from wildfire. But it's really hard to get them away from their regeneration logging plans. The Roseburg BLM and Coos Bay BLM is doing a strange thing where they're going in and doing a regeneration harvest, which is another word for clear cut. Mm-hmm. They're doing a regeneration harvest on units that they thinned 10 years ago. Uh-huh. So there's plantations that they've thinned in order to enhance old growth characteristics so they'll grow faster, and now they're clear cutting them. That's, that's the focus of all their timber sales right now under this new plan. It's yeah. very strange. Yeah. It's unfortunate that they've sort of gone backwards. And, you know, the Northwest Forest Plan that governs the national forests in all of Washington, Oregon, and Northern California, the west of the Cascades, and the range of the northern spotted owl. And these BLM lands are a pretty central part of that Northwest Forest Plan. So what we've seen and what we're really concerned about is the effective withdrawal of the BLM from the Northwest Forest Plan. They withdrew from the Northwest Forest Plan, so now only the Forest Service complies with things like the aquatic conservation strategy. The right. aquatic conservation strategy, which requires them to no longer degrade a watershed. Right. So the BLM said, no, that's not for us anymore. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, it is unfortunate. Well, there's some other things going on that we work on together, like the big LNG pipeline, um, which... Um, connects us through the fact that it runs through uh, both of our territories from uh, from Malin, Oregon, just east of Klamath Falls, all the way to Coos Bay. And I know you've been working a lot on that. You know, we just got a new timeline from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the federal agency in charge of doing the environmental analysis and approving eminent domain. And their new timeline is is that the draft EIS is going to be out March next month. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the final EIS, they actually put a date on it. It's going to be October 11th, oh, yeah. my birthday. Oh, wow. And I then, wonder if they did that on purpose. <laughs> and then they plan to do the final on um, uh, January 2020. Wow. And so we're, of course, uh, we had a panel on that yesterday mm-hmm. here. And they're have, going to have a hard time getting through us. You know that. Yeah, I do. And you know what, though, is they're formidable. They have a lot of money. The uh, proponents for this are putting a lot of money out there in these communities. Um, When you think about what's at stake, we're talking about globalizing an energy resource. Exporting natural gas from the West Coast of the United States would make them a lot of money, would save them a lot of money. And so they're able to throw around tens of millions of dollars, and they're you know, trying to pay off these counties and give grants and do... They have these glossy flyers that are... We've going. gotten a dozen of those <laughs> glossy flyers in the mail. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, you know, what gives me hope is there was a, a hearing for the um, for the DSL permit yes. down, in, down in, in Medford, Oregon. The Department of State Lands permit, yes, right. for uh, removal fill permit. Right. Guess how many people showed up? It was how many? Over a thousand people showed up in opposition. In Medford, Oregon, the line was around the block. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just 
card-carrying environmentalists. There's a lot of people across the board that are concerned with a pipeline through Southern Oregon. So it's great to see uh, how strong that opposition is. I would say it's probably the um, biggest campaign in Southern Oregon right now. A lot of, lot of new LNG stickers on the backs of people's cars and water bottles right now. So. That's great to see. You know, this is a Canadian corporation, Pembina, yeah. who wants permission from the Trump administration to take with eminent domain private property from people in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And there's over 245 private landowners, non-industrial forest land private landowners, that are in the path of the pipeline. And... Uh, they couldn't get anybody to sign a right-of-way agreement back in 2016, just before the Obama administration denied it. Mm-hmm. And they denied it because the landowners would not sign. And I own, in part, owner of land in that pipeline route. And they wanted to take eight acres of our property, and they offered us $2,200. And so nobody was taking their offer, and it got denied in December of 2016. Mm-hmm. But then, a month later, two days after Trump was inaugurated, they refiled. Wow. And so now we're going through the, this will be the third EIS. The first one was import, the second one was export, denied. Right. Sec- third try here. And they are um, offering landowners more money, and, uh, but still about half of those 240 landowners have refuses to sign, and they That's refuse great. to have a Canadian corporation use their land with a one-time payment where this Canadian corporation will make Canadian profits billions of dollars for decades off yeah. their property. Yeah. Well, that's great to see. And I don't care if they offer you $200,000. I hope you don't take it. Um, <laughs> Well, one more thing is I was curious what you thought about um, the passage of the public lands bill that saved the Devil's Staircase. Is that an area you're familiar with? Yes, that (laughs) is wonderful. That's part of Coos Bay BLM and the Sayuslaw National Forest. Right. It's a very rare little gem in the coast range to have a have an area that's not roaded. It's uh, it's now wilderness. How many acres is it? I think it's um, about 30,000 acres. 30,000. Yes, it's just on the other side of the river from the Elliott State Forest. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, we had a lot of things in that bill, mostly wild and scenic river expansions for the Wild Rogue. Um, we were able to stop some mining threats on the Chetco River in the very south coast of, of uh, Oregon. And there's some expansion to the Elk River, which is also um, uh, comes out at, around Port Orford in southern Oregon. Um, there were some other things in there, like a, finally a total decommissioning of the Elk Creek Dam. That was a large dam project on the on the Rogue River, um, and uh, some other wild and scenic expansions. So we're pretty happy about that. Um, unfortunately, we did not get the wild rogue wilderness that we've been working on for so long, but it was great to see that the Devil's Staircase was protected as wilderness. Um, probably a pretty rare area for to have that kind of intact forest in the Oregon Coast Range. Rugged, and that's why it didn't get logged, is because it's just darn rugged, but it's beautiful walk into there. Mm-hmm. So. Have you been to the, to the waterfall? or? I haven't been that far in. It's <laughs> deep in there, huh? It's deep in there. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I have to run to another panel. Well, thank you so much, Joseph Vale from the Klamath-Siskiyou Wildland Center. Uh, the, I'm in the middle of all the tables. All the tables around me are great. I see Beyond Toxics over there. I see Oregon Wild over there. I see G over there. Uh, Cascadia Wildlands is nearby. 
And this is the Conservation Today show broadcasting live from the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference. And someone has just sat down next to me. Hello. Hello. Good morning, Francis. Why don't you grab this and hold it? Well, what's your name? My name is Cabria Cuellar, and I am here tabling with Oregon Wild. Great. And say your name again? Cabria. Cabria. Hi. How wonderful. And, and so you're with Oregon Wild. I am with Oregon Wild. I've been a volunteer and an active Wild Ones. Um, that's part of their advocacy program where they teach people their uh, skills for advocacy and, and how to be boots on the ground, if you will. What is, uh, what is Oregon Wild's mission? I see over there it says protecting Oregon wildlands, wildlife, and water since 1974. I understand that there's some issues going on with wolves in right. Oregon. Can you tell me what the work is you're doing around wolves and what the state is doing around wolves? Sure. Well, there's always, when is there not issues with wolves? Um, I think in, it's, it's something that's going on in every state. Oregon is not um, alone in that. Right now, um, Oregon's last official count was 124 known wolves. Um, That population has not increased that much over the last few years. And um, that's got a lot to do with uh, the state of Oregon taking them off the state's endangered species list in 2015. Um, So the state removed protections for wolves in the entire state. And I don't know how, how much folks know about our wolf population currently, but most of those wolves are in northeastern Oregon. Now, there have been, everybody knows about ORC, our famous wolf that traveled all the way down to California and then came back again. And where is OR7 now? Do you know? Yes. um, Actually, I got to visit his stomping grounds this summer. Uh, Quick plug with Oregon Wild. They do an annual um, wolf rendezvous. Uh, They do one to Crater Lake Rogue area, um, and that is where OR7 currently is. Right now, it's the only known pack in the area. It's called the Rogue Pack. Um, Journey's an older older guy, but he's, he's still there. He's still the alpha um, alpha male. He's still part of that breeding pair. Um, now there are wolves um, still uh, dispensers leaving their natal packs, traveling to California. We've had some of OR7's descendants travel down into California, even into Nevada. Um, but they're looking for mates right now, so they haven't settled down. So right now there's only one pack. I want them to travel west to my place. We want them to travel west. Um, now we have we have heard a little bit about the pack um, outside of Mount Hood. That's that's been exciting because that's been um, that that's been new territory for them. So we're gonna we hope that they're gonna continue traveling west. There's also been some discussion of wolves in um, in the coastal areas of northern Oregon, but again, um, not established packs. And um, I think to be an established pack, don't quote me on this, but we need to have a breeding pair and I think two more in Oregon. It, it changes. And so. Um how many breeding packs are there in Oregon now? Ooh, I want to say 11, but don't quote me on that. Okay. Yep. And are they still protected under the Endangered Species Act, the federal protection? So I'm so glad you asked that because I'm actually doing a presentation on Tuesday night here in town um, at Cascadia Wildlands uh, building to talk about that. So they are still federally protected in two-thirds of Oregon, um, in the one-third, the northeastern third of Oregon, along with the northeastern third of Washington, um, endangered species, federal endangered species protections were taken away. Um, 
we are expecting the federal endangered species to be taken away or an official delisting this year. In fact, we were expecting that to happen at the end of last year. We think maybe the government shutdown stalled that. It didn't happen. And now we know that there was a House bill that was making its way through to try to delist them that way. That never got to go to the Senate. Um, but we do expect uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services to announce their, their delisting decision this year. And I've been involved with Cascadia Wildlands, Oregon Wilds, and Center for Biological Diversity in getting ahead of that delisting. We're, we are collecting comments um, because there's going to be a 30 to 90 day comment period after U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service makes that announcement and um, it's just not time to take away protections if if you pay attention to wolves and you see what's happening in Idaho Montana um, now that it's been turned over to the state for their management plans I'm doing quotation marks here <laughs> um, it's been it's been a slaughter it hasn't been good for wolves it's it's been quite ugly. But why are wolves important? Why do we want to protect them? We haven't had them for a long time, so what, what's the point? Well, they're an apex predator, um, which means they, as a predator, they have a lot of influence on their ecosystem. So we can look to Yellowstone um, for, for the example of what can happen in a habitat once wolves are reintroduced. With Yellowstone, they were experiencing a lot of their native um, plant species they were losing, their aspens they were losing um, to, due to overgrazing from their deer elk population. And it's um, something we call the trophic cascades. It's um, a, it's a scientific name, if you will. But when wolves were reintroduced in the 90s, what we found was those populations that were overgrazing the greens started to get put in check. Wolves will always go after the weakest, the weakest in the in the in the herd. And so um, we found that the elk and deer population got faster, got smarter. They weren't sitting around munching by the river so often. It gave um, it gave the plant life a, ch- plant life a chance to uh, grow back. It gave the, the rivers an opportunity to expand. It gave the fish an opportunity to be fish. We saw bird life come back into the area. Uh, we saw dams start being built. And so uh, it a lot of us um, point to that as an example of, of the balance that can come back in play when, when a predator is allowed to be a predator. And wolves, just like a lot of predators now, this is a big myth that's out there, they do self-manage their populations. They don't breed if circumstances are not good for breeding. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, on the uh, Pacific Connector Gas Pipeline, a wolves is one of the eight or nine mammals that is impacted under that's in, impacted by that pipeline itself, and that is that uh, Crater Lake pack up there it goes right through their habitat. Yep. And uh, the assessment of their biological assessment said that it's uh, not likely to adversely affect the wolves because they're going to cut down a bunch of trees, and there will be more deer, and they'll have more food. <laughs> So anyway. Well, I got to meet with a rancher who has been dealing directly with the rogue pack. And in our discussions, it came up that there was a lot of logging in the area behind his ranch, which was originally where the rogue pack was denning. Um, 
I'm not saying that that's a direct cause of the rogue pack coming down into his area, but logging does push around uh, any kind of that development does push around native species. I mean, I live in Thurston where we hear about cougars coming down every now and then. And if you spend a lot of time driving around Thurston, you can't help but look around at all the clear cuts that are happening around us. And it makes you go, gee, I wonder why the predators are coming down. Hmm. So, uh, I hear that argument. It's it's a twist on facts. Well, it's been fascinating, and thank you so much. Give me your name again. Again, my name is Cabria. From Oregon Wild. From Oregon well, Wild. Thank you for working to protect the wolves. And and Tuesday, you're giving a uh, more information on this. Where yes. is that? Tuesday night, I'm going to be partnering up with Cascadia Wildlands and Oregon Wild. It's part of Center for Biological Diversity's Ignite Change um, campaign. It's their Call of the Wild campaign to get ahead of the uh, federal delisting which will happen Tuesday night at uh, the, I'm going to butcher this, but the Mahonia building. It's actually the building that Cascadia Wildlands is uh, based at. So if you look up Cascadia Wildlands, it's that building. (laughs) Doors are going to open at 5. We're going to start the presentation around 5.30. And um, Nick Cady from Cascadia, who's been very actively involved in the Oregon State Wolf Plan, will be there to fill in some of the legal blanks that I can't fill in. And then we're going to finish it up with an opportunity to write some comments to send to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or to Governor Kate Brown because the Oregon State Wolf Plan, I didn't get a chance to talk much about that, but um, Oregon State uh, was going to hand down their wolf plan and they've now postponed that. That was supposed to happen here in March. There was a protest organized in Salem on the 15th, but they have just said that they're postponing that to an indefinite date. We do not know what's going to happen. Is that March 15th? Yes. And is that protest still going to happen? Right now, the protest is is canceled. Okay. And, yep, yep. Um, and we're because just... Because they postponed it, so we won't protest as long as they keep postponing yeah, it. Yeah, uh-huh. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and just so folks know, this, this wolf plan that got postponed actually is now four years overdue. So it's it's constantly changing in the state of Oregon, just like everywhere and else. And we want Oregon to continue to protect those wolves, for Absolutely. sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Francis, okay. for everything you do. Yeah. This is a Conservation Today show broadcasting live from the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference in Eugene. Thanks to KEPW Community Radio in Eugene. This is Francis Etherington, and we are going to take a break. We'll be right back. We're back. This is Conservation Today, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. This broadcast will be played on KQUA radio show during the regular Conservation Today time in a week. Meanwhile, KEPW Eugene Radio is hosting our show live from the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference in Eugene. And sitting next to me is John Abe, uh, Assistant Station Manager from KEPW. Uh, I'm just excited we got it working today. I, we have a little egg on our face. We planned to have a lot of good programming yesterday, and we got a little bit. I hope people caught that. Uh, uh, but we're excited to have more and glad that it's all working now and glad that you 
wanted to come and do conservation today here. It is so fun to be talking to people at this conference. This is an amazing conference. It happens annually. And folks in Roseburg, you should drive on up. It's free, and the environmental education is phenomenal at this three-day conference here. Every person you run into is uh, working on something interesting, yeah. And you are working on community radio in Eugene. Yeah, I, I feel like this is important to have a platform, you know, where we can get these kinds of things out. So this is the opportunity for the radio station. Oh, great, we have somebody coming over uh, who will maybe be sharing some stuff. There's, you know, this is the chance. You know, when people complain, oh, nobody listens to us or so on, this is the counter. Come on on. Come on, come I on see Dan and, over and there. Dan, why don't you come sit over here? You want to come tell us what you're up to? All right, I'll, I'll step back and uh, let you continue, continue the show. Have fun. What's your name? Uh, my name is Dan Pennington. Dan Pennington. And who? Uh, what group do you work with, Dan? Uh, I work with uh, Coast Range Forest Watch. Oh, great. And so you must live out there on the Coast Range somewhere near Coos Bay. Yeah, I live in Coos County. Uh, we are working on a uh, campaign called Spray Free Coast. And uh, we are one of a few groups along the uh, Coast Range working on uh, aerial spraying. Wow, great. Um, I know that you're going to have a panel tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Yep, that's correct. So I encourage everyone out there in Radioland to come to the Pill Conference tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. This is such an important issue. Uh, It's an important issue because the timber industry clear cuts, and they clear cut because they can herbicide spray. and kill every living thing that might grow back in that clear cut except what makes them money. That's right. It's an incredible um, nasty thing that we allow here in Oregon, and it happens a lot in rural Oregon, and rural Oregonians are impacted by the spray. Right, yeah, and I think it goes to the bigger point of aerial spraying cannot occur if clear cutting does not exist, and so it's part of the the bigger industrial problem that we have on um, on the lands in the coast range. Uh, but yeah, many communities have been affected by aerial spraying, um, <clears throat> along with water quantity and quality issues uh, in general with uh, clear cutting. How is water quantity impacted? I know quality, you know, you put poison in the waters, yeah, that impacts right. the quality. What about quantity? Okay, well, uh, as we just had a really bad storm, a lot of the uh, clear-cut land uh, doesn't have the, the downed trees and the thick, you know, thousands of years of accumulated topsoil to kind of slow and buffer the release of that water. And so in the winter, what you see is... Uh, torrents of mud rushing into our streams, uh, drowning out um, the salmon reds. And uh, in the summer, what you don't have is the slow release of that water, inputting cool, clean water into our creeks, which obviously salmon really need. So it makes our streams more flashy, you know. They uh, have more water in the winter and less in the summer than if there was a canopy to make it more evened out. Right. And another aspect of Uh, summertime water flow is called horizontal precipitation and so when the inland valleys warm they pull that cold or cool moist ocean air over the mountains and the tall canopies that are festooned with moss and lichens and understory uh, they capture and condense that moisture down onto the forest floor. Yes and so are you personally impacted by aerial spraying? Um, Possibly. Uh, We had a uh, clear cut occurred just north of our property and they were going to aerial spray 
and we hopped onto the Fern system and got the information on the logging company, which was Lone Rock Timber, and uh, we talked with them and we convinced them to do um, a ground base spray, backpack spray, which was a lot better, still problematic because it feeds right into our drinking water, but better than... Uh, and is it better than aerial because aerial spray, what, drifts more than ground-based spray? I mean, the helicopter right. rotor wash just blows it around? Right, yeah. I mean, and even the humidity in the air as the the, mole- the toxic molecules come down, they can uh, bind to the moisture particles in the air and some studies have shown it to move as much as eight miles away from its intended source. Ah, eight miles. Yeah. And, you know, I live next to Roseburg Forest Products in Seneca, so I'm always fearful of this. You mentioned FERNS. What is FERNS, the FERNS system? So FERNS is an online notification system through uh, Oregon Department of Forestry, and you can find them just by Google Googling ODF and FERNS. And... It essentially uh, allows the user to sign up and pick an area. So you can draw an area, like a hexagon on a map, and anything that happens within that area, you'll get an email notification. Um, It's not a perfect system, as I'm sure you know, (laughs) but it really helps you to get an idea of what's happening in um, your neck of the woods. Especially if you live in a rural area, you're going to want to know when they plan to clear cut, when they plan to spray herbicides, what herbicides they're spraying? Right. Yeah. What exactly. herbicides do they spray? Um, well, typically there's uh, glyphosate, uh, hexazinone, um, atrazine, which is very biopersistent, uh, 2,4-D, half of Agent Orange, um, and then they combine those. Uh, and there's many others, and then they'll typically spray, you know, three or more of those chemicals along with the surfactant. Um, so. There's not a lot of uh, studies done on the, the combination of when you put those chemicals together. Um, so it's kind of a scary thing, you know. We're kind of the guinea pigs out there. Yes, I understand atrazine has been banned in most of the European, all of European Union. Yeah. And a lot of the United States has been banned in. And in Oregon, they can just use it with impunity. Right, and it's the most commonly found um, chemical in our streams. It just it binds to uh, water pot- particles and it exists. It's, I don't remember what its half-life is, but it's, you know, it's pretty persistent. Our Oregon Department of Forestry regulations, I understand, are the weakest on the Pacific Coast, that, Oreg- that California and Washington have far more protections built in for streams and for aerial spraying, the types of chemicals that they can use. You know, i got to tell you a story. Uh, in 1997, six miles north of us, in Hubbard Creek, there was a landslide that rolled over people's houses and it killed the whole family in the house, except for the children who were more nimble and able to run away. And everyone else died from this landslide. And after that, they put in the public safety regulations, which is if there's something called a high hazard landslide location, an HLHL, it's got an, its own acronym, They have, and, and there's a house downstream. They have to leave 50% of the trees on that. And so what happened to us last summer was the Oregon Department of Forestry called us. We live west of Roseburg. And they called us and said, well, we need to come out and measure how high your house is from the creek. Dysert Creek is our creek. Because Seneca is going to clear-cut in the headwaters of Dysert Creek 
on an HLHL, a high landslide hazard location. And so we have to know if they should leave 50% of the trees or not. And so they came out and they measured our house was 28 feet elevation above the creek. And they says, well, you're, you're safe. 20 feet is to cut off. And if it had been under 20 feet, they would have had to leave 50% of the trees. Right. So they only have to leave 50% if, if a landslide could kill someone. How arbitrary. Well, that's the thing with, like, buffers, right? The riparian is a thing that exists in nature. It describes, uh, it describes the habitat of or the ecology of uh, streamside forests. Um, but humans decide what a buffer is, and it's just a construct of what they want to perceive to be enough of a riparian. But it's all BS. It's incredible that they only protect human lives and they don't protect fish. I mean, right. they know it's going to slide, and there's fish down there. Right. And how can they be allowed to do that? Do you know about the, that law in Oregon that if what they're doing is legal, you can't sue them over it? It's the Right to Farm Act. Right. Have you heard of that Right to Farm Act? Well, I've, I've heard that it's very difficult to sue for anything. So if they totally there. ruin, I mean, if, the, if that landslide comes within feet of our house and they totally rip off all the trees in our creek and, and, and wash out our road and culvert... We can't sue them for damages because of this Right to Farm Act right. in Oregon. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's something wrong with that. <laughs> well, you know, and so Middle Creek is a native control stream, so uh, they don't uh, release uh, hatchery salmon. They study the, uh, the numbers of salmon, and uh, the populations are horrible, and it's because of these arbitrary laws don't, don't uh, really protect salmon. There's so much, there's a deluge of, of mud that flows into our stream every winter. And, and like I said, the water, water quality is not good enough in the summer to keep the stream cool. And so the, they're suffering. The salmon are really suffering in this stream that, you know, they're studying. And, you know, when there's rain on snow, landslides are more possible. And we just had an incredible amount of snow where we live. And we can see that clear cut above us that right. they did this yeah. last summer. And now if it rains in that snow, oh, we won't die. Will it happen? Oh, we're just frightened. Right, yeah, yeah. That's, that's horrible. That's horrible to live in fear that something above you can come down. And yeah, and the rain on snow. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me, Francis. For talking. It's been fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's my <laughs> pleasure. Right. Great, great. Okay, well, this is KEPW. Live from Pilk. And this is Francis Etherington on Conservation Today. And so now let's see who, if we can find someone else to talk to, who might be around this table. After all, here at Pilk, we have some of the most incredible environmentalists from the world walking around here at Pilk. And if you haven't been here, come. Hello. Hi, Francis. What's your name? Uh, my name is Jimmy Betts. Hey, Jimmy Betts. Well, welcome. Um, who are you with? Um, I work with a few different organizations, but a collective that I have been working with historically related to frack gas infrastructure, um, both at the regulatory level as well as on the ground uh, with grassroots uh, resistance uh, is Beyond Extreme Energy. Um, and most of the time I am traveling to be in solidarity with communities who are sticking together and resisting oppression in various forms. Well, Jimmy, you know, we met in 2015 
at a Beyond Extreme Energy event yes. where we protested in front of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission office in Washington, D.C. At the time, I was facing a threat from a Canadian corporation to put a pipeline on my property. And I, I was so glad for Beyond Extreme Energy to provide this opportunity for me to come to D.C. and protest in front of that office. We did a fast. Mm-hmm. And that's where we met. Oh, yes. The, but I, in particular, I was really glad to see you make the journey out um, because many of the folks we, we do work with are more East Coast based and so it's a, a little bit lighter lift and so it was excellent to have you out there with us and a few other comrades too who came from your bioregion. Yes, yeah. right. Jacob LaBelle was there yep. who's now yep. with the Children's Trust Lawsuit mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from Roseburg. Um, so what is our biggest issue now that we're working on? <laughs> when you say our, um, how about your? <laughs> <laughs> um, personally, um, I do different work than uh, the collective of Beyond Extreme Energy as a as a group of people um, in realms of what would be considered by some maybe community defense, uh, community sovereignty could be related to food issues, um, as well as more sustainable forms of actually. Uh, being with nature and getting food. Uh, sometimes people call it permaculture. I would call it decolonizing permaculture because of everything that's tied into that and also what is considered Western and white culture. Um, and so some of the work I do is around skill sharing uh, as well as developing solidarity between movements as well. So it's not just about extraction. And I think you know this as well. It's, it goes beyond that. It hopefully will unlock the relationships that some of us have felt that were separate from both with each other as people, with uh, other organisms, as well as the planet, the land that we're on. Um, so many things that are going into that analysis. And at least for this year, uh, I'm hoping to do a little bit more of a guidance type of role, both learning more information, learning more skills, and then being able to share that to, uh, with people who uh, both want it, as well as uh, may not have direct access to it uh, because of patriarchy, among other things. What is our biggest threat right now as far as the West Coast communities go here in Oregon, in your opinion? Ooh, I, I don't want to answer that, okay. mainly because I'm not uh, a local uh, resident or um, anything of that nature, so I would defer to asking you that question. Well, my answer would be Jordan Cove. <laughs> Jordan Cove, okay, certainly, for talking Canadi- about this. A Canadian mm-hmm. company who wants to take Oregonians' land in order to ship fossil fuels, some of the highest greenhouse gas emitting fossil fuels how stupid Mm -hmm, can we be mm -hmm. and put the export terminal on a subduction zone earthquake Mm -hmm. in a tsunami zone okay so that's what I think (laughs) that is a a major threat for this bioregion let alone pretty much every every other part of the coast as well because all of this stuff will travel around through ocean currents as well as the atmosphere itself so um, no, and, and, you know, they're going to do two, an extra uh, 120 ships a year is what they want to do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to ship this gas to Asia. Mm-hmm. And they have to go through all the whale migration routes. Mm-hmm. And so it impacts eight species of whales protected oh, wow. under the Endangered Species Act. So it's a huge impact to whales mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, as well as people, mm-hmm. as well as our climate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Liquefied fracked gas. And this is the third strike, essentially, that they're coming back with the same or similar, we're just going to call it the same project, because let's face it, they're trying to do the same thing uh, with a different name, 
maybe a different set of uh, contracts here and there. Yes, and a bigger owner. They've Verizon, Verizon sold Verizon. out to mm-hmm. Pembina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's what we're dealing with here. So come to the Pilk Conference, everybody out there in Radio Land, and uh, there's lots of great issues. And uh, have you been on any panels? Um, I have not been in any, any panels. Uh, I'm just here to support. Uh, I was just recently in the uh, Law and Oppression panel with uh, women of, women of color speak out uh, out of the Seattle general area. Um, and so just whatever I can do to support folks who are building their analyses, um, being lovingly critical of one another in relationship, because if you're critical with somebody without a relationship, you're just yelling back and forth and nobody's actually learning anything. Um, but that is one organization of people who I respect profoundly uh, for the work they do as people of and in the environmental, we'll say movement, whatever that means. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Uh, and so we're so lucky to have this uh, environmental conference, mm-hmm. you know, so close to Roseburg, right here in Eugene, mm-hmm. and uh, it's fascinating, a lot of educational stuff, so yeah, come on out to Pilk, it's free. It is free, and it's wonderful. Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks, Francis. <laughs> and here, I'll hold this, and oh, look at there's someone over there that might want to talk to us. Is, could that be Dave? <laughs> this is Francis Etherington, Conservation Today. Uh, on uh, KQUA Radio, and today live on KEPW, live from Pilk. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. We're back. This is Conservation Today. I'm your host, Francis Etherington, and we are doing live from the PIELC, the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference in Eugene. Thank you to KEPW in Eugene, 97.3, on the Eugene Dial for recording this program for us. It was brought, It was recorded on March 2nd, and we will play it again for our Roseburg audience at KQUA on March 8th and 9th. Well, hello there. Hi. What's your name? I'm Dave Stone. Dave Stone, and who are you with? I'm president of Friends of Douglas Fir National Monument. The Douglas Fir National Monument. Yeah, it's a proposal for a new national monument uh, to cover a big chunk of the Willamette National Forest east of Sweet Home. East of Sweet Home, and it's a part of the Willamette National Forest. How many acres would the monument be? Uh, 500,000. Hey, that would be great. Yep, yep, it's big. It needs to be big. And why should it be a national monument? Well, right now it's um, just general forest managed by the Forest Service uh, for things like timber production and that sort of thing. Um, We want to switch over from um, timber targets to... um, Restoration forestry. Restoration forestry is a way to bring back the uh, forest to a natural condition from all the damage the logging has done. Um, Our version of restoration forestry, there's lots of definitions. Our definition includes thinning to get rid of the brush, the uh, fire suppression left uh, in place, um, prescribed fire to burn up some of that brush, and Closing and decommissioning, which means taking out old roads that are eroding into the creeks. Yes. I mean, those roads, I understand, are some of the worst dangers to our fish, especially when we have a huge snow event like this and perhaps rain afterwards. Yeah, rain on snow is really bad, especially on old 
um, poorly engineered roads. So decommissioning roads means you go in there and you just take out the road, and after you're done, it looks like the road was never there. So uh, I understand roads are bad because they often um, slide away, more so than a natural hillside. Yeah, there's that. There's lots of other problems with roads. Um, Wildfires, 70 or 80% of wildfires are human-caused. Most people think they're caused by lightning, but they're mostly caused by by human sources. And when you have roads into the backcountry, you have people. I mean, that's what the roads are for. And they go there, and intentionally or not, they set they have campfires that they don't put out correctly. Um, even sparks from um, their their cars when they drive off onto the grass can start off a wildfire. Right. So that's another reason to close roads. Um, a third reason is um, endangered species, or not an invasive species. Um, for instance, um, when you go into a um, backcountry and your car has scotch broom seeds on it, you can spread scotch broom really bad. Highly flammable, highly invasive. Um, and that's another reason to close the roads, is to keep out those invasive species. Well, yes, roads sound like they're really bad. And besides, we like wild land. Well, and, that's right. And the, and, the, and the wild creatures can survive better in wild land than next to people. Well, yeah, the, you know, you go across a bear in the backcountry in your car, and what does he do? He runs away. Right. That's not natural behavior. No. no. And, and in places like um, where you're proposing to be a national monument, wasn't there historically places like wolverines or lynx up at the high cascades, up at the high mountains up there? I'm not sure about wolverines, but yes, for sure, lynx. Um, and we don't have reports of wolves but we have wolf habitat, and we're going to welcome the wolves back when they show up. All right. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to when they cross Interstate 5 and come over to my place in the Coast Range. Yep, they're on their way. Okay. Uh, you know, OR7 that went from um, the Wallawas down to uh, Northern California, I bet he came through our monument. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so there's other features of our monument besides... Yes. Um, the restoration forestry. Um, we have three wilderness areas already, and those will be left as wilderness, which means. Um, and which are three are those? Okay, that would be the Menagerie Wilderness, the Middle Sanium Wilderness, and the western half of Mount Jefferson Wilderness. Um, we also have wilderness quality lands that haven't been protected. There's a place called Crabtree Valley, um, hard to get to. We know where it is, and we can take you out there. We're having a series of outings this summer um, to various uh, high points in our area. Um, our first outing is called an auto tour. We drive you right up the middle of the area. Um, it's for people like me who can't do hiking anymore. Um, uh-huh. We're going to do two of those this summer, one in um, the end of June and one in October. We're going to take people and show them uh, fall color in the, on the October um, auto tour. Now, there's not a lot of fall color in a conifer forest, but we know where it is, and we're going to take you there. Um, in July, we're going to uh, lead a hike to Iron Mountain. Iron Mountain is the best place for wildflowers in the Western Cascades, and that's not wow. just a brag. Wow. There's a book called Wildflowers of the Western Cascades, Nearly every picture in that book came from Iron Mountain. So wow. we're going to take you there. 
um, at the height of uh, wildflower season, which also means at the height of butterfly season. And then a few weeks later, we're going to go to Echo Basin, which is near Iron Mountain. Echo Basin has um, a big old stand of old growth Alaska yellow cedar. Alaska yellow cedar, yeah. that's rare. Yeah, you don't get that very, very no. far south. That's why I call it this far south. That's why it's called it, Alaska. It's related to Port Orford cedar, isn't it? On it's the a coast? cedar. It's yeah. a cedar, yes. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to do a hike on the old Santa Ann Wagon Road um, trail that goes to um, some stands of old growth. So um, if you want to hear about our hikes, um, you can go to our website, which is www.douglasfirnationalmonument.org. And on the homepage, at the bottom of the homepage, is a link to my email. Just send me an email saying, sign me up, and you will hear about our outings. Excellent. And how is the National Monument proposal uh, uh, going along legislatively? I know that they just passed a public lands bill, and they didn't include you. They did include a new wilderness over in the Coast Range, the Devil's Staircase Wilderness. Yeah, Devil's Staircase. And so wh- when, are, when are they going to include the Douglas Fir National Monument? Well, National Monuments take a long time. For instance, the Cascade Siskiyou's National Monument down by Ashland, that took them 20 years. Yes. Um, our campaign has been going on for about four years now. Um, so right now we're in the building support stage. What we want is to have a lot of support before we even approach Congress. Um, when we go to our congressmen, um, we show them all the pretty pictures, give them our case statement that says why this should be, and they go, oh, that's nice. Who cares? And so we want them to have a stack of letters from people who care before we even go in. Um, now, our original plan was Hillary was going to declare our national monument at the end of her second term. Presidents, either presidents or Congress, can declare national monuments. Well, we got the wrong president. And that's when a, a national monument is usually declared at the end of a presidential term is when we get a lot of national monuments. They can declare them under the Antiquities Act and doesn't have to pass Congress. That's right, yes. And it's wait, it waits till the end of the, um, the second term because even though it's a great idea and has lots of support, it's controversial. But um, they've always been controversial. The Grand Canyon started... Um, as a national monument way back in the early 1900s. And there was local opposition to that. But if you look at their license Arizona license plate, they call them the Grand Canyon State. So our ultimate goal is to um, have on our license plate the Douglas Fir State. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, it, well, that's fascinating, Dave. Thank you very much. And repeat your website again for okay. us. It's pretty straightforward. It's www, like they all are, www.douglasfirnationalmonument.org. Okay. Okay, Okay, see you in the woods. See you in the woods, absolutely. Thanks, Francis. And one of your fabulous hikes coming up. Yep. Thanks, Francis. This is Francis Etherington, Conservation Today, broadcasting live from the PILT Conference. This is KEPW. 97.3 97.3 FM, hosting Conservation Today for KQUA. 
We are live at the Pilt Conference, and there's lots of tables around. And your table is right over there. Why don't you tell us your name? Uh, my name is John. I'm the uh, communications manager for Beyond Toxics. I've been working for them for 10 years. All right, John. Well, thanks for this. will also be played in Roseburg on the Conservation Today show. Fantastic. Yes. I know actually someone who's very involved in KEPW. Uh, David Zupin is one of the organizers uh, in the Eugene area, and he's been doing fantastic work for media awareness and alternative media. So I just want to give a shout out to him and KEPW for the great work that they're doing. Alternative media is so important. You know, local media uh, is so important to really know what's going on in our own backyard. What, what is the mission of Beyond Toxics? What do you do? Well, I am the communications manager, so I do uh, some mundane things like take care of the website and uh, put out flyers and so forth. But I'm also uh, in charge of connecting with the media and getting our message out through the mainstream media. And alternative media is a wonderful way of doing that, too. I'm a very big supporter, have been for years, of alternative media. Now, Beyond Toxics uh, does a, a lot of work with uh, environmental justice issues and uh, communities uh, threatened with toxics, obviously. Mm -hmm. They also do a lot of work with protecting bees. Correct, yeah. And we're finding ways to connect uh, the two, the issue of environmental justice and the survival of bees, because when, as bees decline, the variety of food uh, that we have in our society goes down, and that affects uh, people of uh, lower income, people of color. Uh, for example, we're, we keep an eye on what happens in West Eugene, and that's going to affect uh, food security as well. So we're making connections there. And if I just want to give a shout-out to beyondtoxics.org and ask uh, your listeners to, uh, to check that website out. Uh, the first slide on the homepage will uh, direct you to what our uh, legislative priorities are this year in the, in the 2019 Oregon legislature. And what is those priorities? Uh, we have a bill that is, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it's one bill that's seeking to, or maybe it's two bills, uh, that is seeking to ban clopyrifos, uh, which is a mouthful, but uh, it's an organic uh, organophosphate that the EPA looked at and actually advocated for uh, banning it nationwide, but they got pressure from the Trump administration to back off on that. So it really needs to be addressed, and we're looking to address that this year. Is that one of the um, uh, problems with bee kills? Is, is, is it that chemical, or is it some other chemical they're more susceptible to? Uh, they are uh, Bees are more susceptible to a class of uh, pesticides called neonicotinoids, and that's the, uh, the other bill that we're looking to pass, which uh, makes it, um, requires uh, users, uh, pesticide users to get a certificate to, to be able to handle that. And the essential uh, impact of that will be to take neonicotinoid products off of store shelves for consumers. So that's a very important aspect of what we're doing. And like I said, you can go to the homepage of the website beyondtoxics.org and find out how you can get involved. Uh, those are the two main bills that we're pursuing in the legislature this year. And you also do work in forestry, too. Don't you promote sustainable forestry practices? We have, we're doing many things for that. Um, one of them is uh, we have tours of resilient, what we call resilient forests that are working forests that are uh, managed in a way that's uh, much more sustainable. And there are several uh, forests like that throughout the state that we offer tours to go see and see oh, how yes. they do that. Yes. 
I, I, you've been involved in that as well, haven't right. you? Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. It is so important for us to educate everybody on what is sustainable forestry practices because we all use paper. Mm-hmm. We want to use paper cups instead of plastic cups. Right. Right. And so we can do this. Yeah. And the yeah. way that they're being managed is especially important because of the challenges of, of climate change. Uh, they use less, much less water. They do not use uh, uh, aerial spraying. Um, so, and, and they thin the forest rather than clear cuts. That all of those things are interrelated if we want to be able to survive into the next century because of the challenges of climate change. Uh, new ways of forestry need to be looked at very closely. So this is what we're advocating. Well, um, great. And I hope everyone goes to your website. And I know Lisa's on two panels at the same time. Did you notice that? Lisa Ark and the executive director of Beyond Toxics is on two panels right now. <laughs> that's she is a fabulous We've thought about worker. figuring out a way to clone her because that's the only way to get the kind of... We don't even need to because she's yeah. everywhere all the time. She is everywhere. Well, thank you very much, John. I really appreciate you talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you for the good work that you do, Francis. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. We are live at the PILT Conference. This is a wonderful conference. I hope uh, if you can't make it this year, you make it next year. This is an annual conference from Thursday through Sunday. It's free. There are hundreds of panels on every subject you could want. There are environmentalists here from all over the world. Uh, The law students put this conference on, and uh, it is a fascinating place to come to and to be. Well, thank you. Uh, It's been fun. This is Francis Etherington, and I'm turning this back over to John.